when was the first time that you heard the rumbling of what was genuinely you and your giftedness? When was the first time that you heard the sound of that or somebody heard that within you and named that for you? And I think whether you're a doctor, a lawyer, a nurse, plumber, or you're doing domestic work, whatever that might be, that question is still relevant for everyone. Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe that the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We're able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Center for Congregations podcast. I'm your co-host, Ben Tapper, coming to you from Indianapolis, and I'm joined today by a very special co-host, our very own President Reverend Tim Shapiro. Tim, it's great to have you here this morning. Hey, Ben. It's really good to be with you. I've been looking forward to this. So, hey. Hi. Hey, Tim, the topic for today is going to be discernment, which can be kind of a nebulous topic of conversation, hard to kind of you know wrap your mind around. But I'm wondering for you in the work that you do as the president for the Center for Congregations, where does discernment come up in your day-to-day work? An important question right from the very beginning. One thing I'll say, I, I think I'm going to have a better answer after we listen to Reverend Stephen Lewis, because mm. I think that's kind of like what he's all about, and I'll be all ears to hear that. At the center, we talk about hospitality, and we try to figure out what does hospitality mean? And even is that word, is that word problematic in some ways? But one of the things, another way that Stephen Lewis's book, along with two other co-authors, he talks about creating hospitable space. And so in terms of discernment, it's not just how do we create hospitable space, but I've been, I think with a lot of the staff, been thinking about for whom? Mm discerning for whom are we creating hospitable space and the ways in which we have been creating hospitable space. In those situations, where has that really been a closed door for other people? And so, yeah, it almost keeps me up at night. I don't want to literally say that because I don't know other things along with this, but this is high on my list, trying to discern who are we for, who's not seen through us, trying to discern, okay, name those now what do we do with it Mm. so i'm thinking in terms of us serving congregations thinking about hospitality something that steven says is really important you'll hear more about that but center for congregations how do we discern what hospitality means and for whom yeah that's really good and that's similar to the answer that i was going to give as a resource consultant i'm often talking with congregations hearing about their needs and then i've got to do some discernment to listen Because sometimes the work isn't to meet the immediate need that's present. Sometimes in the listening, I'm able to hear, oh, no, there's actually a more primary need that I may or may not be able to meet. But if I can't meet it as a representative of the center, I might be able to point them to the person that can meet it. But I've got to do that listening and that discerning within myself to even be able to point them that direction. And, And so I think that's where it comes up most often for me is just in the active listening that I do to try to understand the ways that I can, I guess, practice hospitality but also resource congregational leaders and try to respond to the needs that they're bringing me day in and day out. Yeah, Ben, it sounds like the hospitality piece of this is that you're listening between the lines of what they're saying, and that is honoring another person. You may be able to articulate back to a congregational leader what she would describe if she only knew how, and you're opening that space for her. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also comes up internally as we think about the difference between meeting the external needs of congregations versus how do we discern for ourselves? Like, what does the work look like? What does the work feel like? What programs do we need to add or remove? Like, there's a lot of internal discernment that happens sometimes too. And so I think that can be another way that it shows up that I don't often think about, but it's equally discernment, you know, figuring out, okay, are the offerings we have meeting the needs that we hope they're going to meet? And if not, what discernment has to happen so that we can shift when we need to shift. So I think it can happen internally as well as be externally facing. 
one could think of podcasts like this as oh, another program, it's another offering, it's a way to promote, but maybe podcasts began in so many hearts of people because they discern there's this need to be talking to each other, need to be having a group of two or three, and it wasn't meeting some other goal. It was a natural yeah. discernment of how to continue the conversation. I love that. And this is rich, but what I'm discerning now is that we should probably let our listeners hear from Stephen himself because he's, you know, the expert. So without further ado, we thank y'all for listening and we're going to send you over to hear our conversation with Reverend Stephen Lewis. great to be here today. I get to join in conversation with Reverend Tim Shapiro, our president, and Reverend Stephen Lewis, who's the president for the Forum for Theological Exploration. He's also the author of Another Way, Living and Leading Change on Purpose. So Reverend Lewis, it is great to have you here this morning. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Before we jump into the meat of this conversation, can we just take a moment? I want to invite you, Reverend, to share whatever you want to share about yourself to our audience so they have some good context for who you are and the perspective you're bringing. Sure. Well, my name is Stephen Lewis, and I've been serving as president of the Forum for Theological Exploration for the last 10 years. And under my leadership, we took what will be in 2024 almost a 70-year-old organization, we transitioned and really kind of led institutional change and changed its name back in 2014. And so, you know, my background, I have a business and a theology background or degrees, I should say, and really have been working within religious institutions and shaping and really trying to lead change within religious institutions to be responsive to a changing landscape particularly through FTE and our work as an organization to cultivate the next generation of leaders that will serve the church and the academy communities of faith. So I'm glad to be with you today and looking forward to this conversation. It's good to be here. Stephen, Ben also. So Stephen, I was just thinking as you were describing your work and the work at the Forum of Theological Exploration, so you help folks discern their call, and that call may involve moving into the academy, moving into a congregation, looking for leadership in another religious-based type of organization. It's primarily in the church and the academy. So we're looking for folks who, well, I should say we're trying to help people consider to discern and to pursue a call to congregational ministry, to Christian ministry which may begin in a congregation or lead in a congregation or end in a congregation. So they could be a, you know, they could start out as a youth minister or a chaplain or a campus minister. But it is about, you know, the profession of ministry, trying to find folks who will serve in the profession of ministry as leaders of churches, congregations, campus ministries in a variety of different settings, as well as serving and working with underrepresented students who are pursuing PhDs in religion, theology, and the Bible. And primarily because we know that, you know, more and more of our communities are looking for an educated clergy to lead those communities and to deal with a number of issues that they may face in their own particular context. Sounds like really simple work. I'm sure it doesn't stress you at all. <laughs> I wish it was, <laughs> but it's good work. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, Tim. No, I was going to say the same thing. It sounds really easy, Stephen. Like you just wake up and it just flows. So I'm interested in terms of the discernment process. Does it look different? Does it feel different depending on the context of what a certain person might be considering? How contextual is discernment? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Discernment is very contextual. It is languaged in ways that are reflective of a different ecclesial community's tradition. I think it is contextual in terms of who is doing the discernment and or what communities are discerning what types of leader. And there are also maybe unconscious preferences that 
people are looking for or consciously their conscious preferences or biases that people may have as they think about leadership for their community. And so discernment, I think, takes on the character of the community as well as the leader or leaders who are actually in discernment. I love the way that you phrase that, that it takes on the character of the leader or the leaders that are in discernment. I've never heard it described in that way. It's a very rich definition and it adds a lot of nuance. There's a kind of a running joke with, with some friends that I have talking about, you know, what does it actually mean when someone says, oh, God told me to do this, right? Like usually just kind of thrown out there like, oh yeah, God told me to do it. That's why I did it. I mean, okay, that's probably true, maybe true, but surely there are other layers to your decision-making process than that. And can we, can we talk about and unpack those? And so you framing it this way, I think brings us to that unpacking to the forefront in ways that I don't normally hear when we're discussing what it means to discern. I'm also, and maybe Tim and Stephen, you can help me tease this thought out. It's about mutuality and discernment. The example that came to mind was, so I'm currently in the Anabaptist tradition. Mm -hmm. And so as a Mennonite, if you're searching for a pastor, a pastor, a few will come to your church, you'll hear them preach. And then both the potential pastor and the congregation have to decide if it's a good fit, right? There's a mutuality to discernment. But so often when I think of discernment personally, I'm thinking of it from like one angle and one side. And so, so I'm wondering if you can speak to and flesh out how do we incorporate and understand mutuality when it comes to the discernment process? What's its place? Yeah, well, I mean, I think in the end, discernment is on behalf of or in service to a community. We don't understand ourselves outside of and in relationship to some kind of community. Now, some of those relationships that we may have or ideas of community or bridges that we have to those may be impoverished. And so I'm not suggesting that communities in themselves are ones that are optimized and operating at full level. But I say all that to say is that we're not people into ourselves. We're not an island into ourselves. We live, move, and have our being most often within community or in relationship with others. So discernment really is a social kind of practice by which individuals discover the ways in which they may be called or compelled or inspired to use their gift in service to what a community may be longing for, may be in need of, or to address some injustice. And so in that sense, I think the mutuality is, you know, it's kind of the Martin Luther King idea about this idea that, you know, I can't be who I am unless you, you know, become who you are, that there is this idea that in community, we are exchanging and relating to one another as we discern what our individual and also what we're collectively called to be and do in relationship with one another within this community that we call church in that sense. So I think the, the mutuality there is about how the individual and the community is called and is calling one another to exercise his, her, or their gifts in service to what the community may ultimately be called to be in the larger world as a witness of those who follow the way of Jesus. Hey, Stephen, when you're working with a group of folks and they are in this exploration process, if someone is entering that process and they're thinking more I, like I've been called, I want to do this, I've had this experience, now I want to move to that experience. How do you help a person move from thinking I, me, all that, which is sometimes a person has to think what's going on inside themselves, kind of going where Ben was going, you know, what is God speaking to me? But how do you like literally move a person to move the discernment from what? I'm thinking and praying about to what we are thinking about on your behalf and with you. Yeah, well, at least in the book, you know, we kind of talk about these four practices, creating space, ask self-awakening questions, reflect theologically together, and then enact not five, not four, not three, but what is the one thing? What is the one next most faithful step that you might take to enact or inhabit um, which you might be called to be and do um, as a result of your discernment. And so to your question, what do we do? We do a number of different things depending on 
the group of people that we're working with. So, I mean, you know, the team has a very set way in which they go about doing that. But what I would ultimately say is that what you want to do is create a container where people can actually discern and to ask these deeper questions. I'm reminded of the late legendary educator Howard Thurman said to a group of graduating students from Spelman College in May 1980, he says, of all the things he could have said to them, their next station in life and what it is they may do with their life. He decided to say this one thing, which is there is in you something that waits and listens for the sound of the gene within yourself. No one like you has ever been born. You are the only one. And if you cannot hear the sound of the gene within yourself, you will never find what it is that you're looking for. And then he goes on with another iteration of that. And he says, if you don't listen to the sound of the genuine within yourself, it is better that you had never been born. Mm-hmm. Well, he gives another iteration of that and says, if you don't hear the sound of the genuine and follow it, then you will forever be on the ends of strings that someone else pulls. And then he goes on, but the point he comes back and says, so the invitation here is, can you get still enough? Not quiet enough, but still enough. To hear the unique idiom, that rumbling, the sound of the genuine within yourself. I don't know if you can, but this is your assignment. So what we do is we try to create spaces where folks are invited to hearing the sound of the genuine within themselves. And more in different type of ecclesial settings, we would call that, you know, to listen to Christ or to listen to the Holy Spirit. But we try to create the kind of environment where young people can explore, listen to the sound of God within them. Because ultimately, God wants us to be nobody else but ourselves and to be able to use us towards that end. So we create space where folks can ask questions and to be reflective and to journal and to try on different expressions of what that might look like um, in their own self-understanding. Who am I in terms of my identity? What kind of community, what were the social forces who have shaped who I am and what I'm becoming up to this point? What do others have said about my gifts or they poured into me or they saw what I could not see that they considered to be gifts? What wrestling do I have about the use of these types of gifts? And then how do I think about ministry in the intersection of the things that I care about? Because I want to know that my faith has something to say about, and you can fill in the blank, climate, poverty, and all other kinds of injustice, et cetera, et cetera. Then we put them in front of people that helps embody the type of integration of what that might look like. Because, you know, we have particular ideas of what a minister looks like and does on a particularly given day of the week, the activities that he or she or they do. And we try to show them that, you know what, the things that you care about in the world, the issues that you say that matter to you, this compelling to make a difference in the world. We want to show you that you can actually make a difference in the world through ministry. And we're going to put people in front of you that embody the contradictions that you may not even have language for. But you see this type of integration in individuals. So we have women who have never seen another woman be a pastor and be leading her congregation in a community around a number of different social issues that that community cares about. We have people who never imagined that, you know, that you can be a minister and do these other things, whether it's working with the school board or it's thinking about public housing or it's a number of different kind of ways in which ministry intersects or how they're trying to move their actual congregation towards that end. And so, you know, after we do this type of reflection, after we put these types of individuals in front of them, then we also help them to think about engaging these individuals and have conversations with these individuals and to think about and to imagine what it might look like they can see themselves in these kinds of examples or models that 
opens and creates new vistas and imagination of possibilities that they had not even considered for themselves before. And then, you know, we invite them to sit with that, to see what's rumbling within them, and then to ask them what might they do in terms of a next faithful step towards further investigation or question that is before them as they see these examples or these contradictions, et cetera, and move from there. Now, the people who are able to do that in spaces like FT, that's wonderful. But not everybody has these kinds of affirming kind of communities in their own particular settings. You know, we have communities of naysayers. We have communities of you're not ready. We have communities that you can't. We have communities that, you know, have a, a million and one reasons why um, a person and a young person in particular can't, shouldn't, wouldn't, couldn't, or should never think about and consider ministry. So I think for us as an organization, when people say no, we say yes. Um, we affirm these young people and really create a kind of possibility network that they join a network of people who see the possibilities and stark distinctions from what they may experience or encounter in their own settings or affirm what they do experience in their own different settings. And it's just a reinforcement of what it is they call it do. But, you know, there are plenty of folks, particularly women and especially women of color, who have an uphill battle to discern particular calls to ministry in a profession that is still very, how shall we say it, you know, in some expressions can be very sexist even today in terms of opportunities, mm -hmm. in terms of pay grades, in terms of all the things that come with that oftentimes men just take for granted when they think about the profession and what they're able to do in this particular. That's not saying everybody. I'm just mentioning that to say is that, you know, it's not an equal or level playing field. And yet in spite of God calls them that in spite of communities, God creates a community out of other groups of folks that support those who may not be, you know, affirmed or supported by traditional settings. So that's what I'll offer there in terms of what we're at least up to within our particular setting. So Stephen, right now I'm feeling really still in a good way on a podcast. It's not good to have silence, but from what you just said, I do feel settled and still I'm not sure and happy to hear Ben's experience, but I'm curious when I was listening to you right then, Stephen, one of the things I think I was hearing was, yes, a description of what you do, description of FTE, description of different folks you work with. But I also sensed it was that which is genuine in your spirit speaking. That like exactly the thing you're talking about is what was happening. And so I'm curious, what does it feel like? What does it feel like to, in a refrain, quote Howard Thurman, what's it feel like for you when you're describing what you just described? It's a good question. I mean, I think it feels like freedom. And I think, you know, as a, as a person of color, you know, in this country and even in this profession who have to do what W. Du Bois talks about, this, this idea of our two-ness, this double consciousness, to recognize, you know, that, that who we are is not a problem, as Du Bois was talking about in 1908 through his book, The Souls of Black Folks. But I too, this is a gift and that to think about my ancestors and where I am today, that I have the privilege and the freedoms that they didn't have. It is a kind of liberation of freedom to be able to listen and to pursue the sound of my own genuine, to be able to, to talk as my friend, the Reverend Matthew Williams would say, full-throated, to be able to Speak in a such a way that, you know, you have a sense of assuredness that in spite of what people say, in spite of what communities are, that there is a God that is working in us and through it. That's why I love what Thurman says. And the first part of his speech only gets like the credit. But if you examine deeper parts in that piece, he goes on to say that there is in others. The sound of the gene. Like, can we not only hear the sound of the gene within ourselves, but can we hear the sound of the genuine within our mother? 
within our parents, within our neighbors. And then it goes on to say, can we hear the sound of genuine in the world? And this idea that if I go down deep inside myself and I come up inside of you and I see what you see is that we are one. And then he concludes that whole piece about, you know, and this is what God must have seen that let us make music when we come together. And so for us, of all the things that you can say about what's wrong and what's not and what should be, the church will be what it will be because of and when people listen and discern the sound of their own genuine. Yes, they'll have to negotiate the politics. Yes, they'll still have to attend to all the stuff that comes with the mundanes of being a leader and running institutions, et cetera, et cetera. But they have the profound experience to discern that. And too often when we're on the hamster wheel, running back and forth day after day, putting out fires, we don't even have enough bandwidth, space to even hear what God is calling us to at this moment. God hasn't stopped writing scripture. God is still writing scripture on our hearts. And this is what we want young people in the next generation to know that, that we are another expression, another gospel that God is still working in and through in, in that work. And so for us, this whole idea of about another way is really trying to look at this idea that, you know, what we're up to in this moment is really trying to hopefully liberate people and to see that God is still working in us and through us and calling us beyond ourselves to catch up what God is already up to within our communities. And the question is, you know, can we sit a little bit more loosely with our possessions, the things that we care about? Can we sit more loosely with maybe divesting from our self-interest into what God invites us to participate in. And so that's what we're really up to with these young adults. We want them to see in spite of what may be or not be as it relates to these institutions that we hold sacred in our work, that God is still up to something. I hear you and I hear that your work is focused on young adults. And as someone who I think by most measures is moving out of that young adult window, I'm 34, most cutoffs I see around 35. So I'm about to not be a young adult anymore, right? But as I'm looking around, you know, I've been in the workforce over 10 plus years, worked quite a few different jobs. I'm close enough to that period of life to remember the different phases of discernment that I've had to go through, the different times where I've had to rediscover the sound of my genuine, right? And that work is extraordinarily important. The deeper I get into the workforce and into the world and into my communities, the more I'm like, yo, I'm glad I did this work but can the people that came before me like revisit it from time to time? So I want to know what, what the message is for those that are like a bit further along in their path. What is their relationship with rediscovering, reengaging, reconnecting with the sound of the genuine? Is it different than what it is for those that are young adults? Uh, and if so, what does that feel like and look like for them? Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I think all this is really about your own kind of authenticity, you know, your own unique offering, you know, the sound of your genuine is, you know, it is your scripturally we talk about, you know, it is your spiritual gift, maybe, you know, it is mm -hmm. your giftedness or your charism, or it could be this idea that, you know, it's your medicine for the community, right? But it's this idea that you're here for a purpose, for a reason, that you bring something to the world. Now, it may take on different shapes and contours at different stages of your life. But all of us bring something. And so part of this is about what we kind of write about in the book, at least in African-American communities. There is this understanding that, you know, that you, you know, you don't represent yourself. You represent a community. Now, I don't speak for all folks within that particular community. But what I'm saying is, is that and as a representation of this particular community, you have particular gifts that you bring in service to this community in the broader world. So what folks often say, you know, don't. Don't make us look stupid right? or, you know, don't embarrass us. And so what does that have to do with older folks or older people who may be further along in this journey? What I think it conveys is that 
I have yet to meet anyone who says they don't want their life to matter. Mm -hmm. I've yet to meet anyone who doesn't want to know that their life has some purpose, that they have some gift to offer to a larger community. And yet oftentimes, you know, just using the Corinthian text or whatever, we oftentimes elevate and create a hierarchy and say that the gift of the spoken word, the one who's called to be the preacher, is the most prized gift. But the fact of the matter is, is that a community needs all these different types of gifts, whether you're using the list in First Corinthians from first century or you're using a more modernized list in terms of what we need today in the 21st century. And I think that, you know, in that sense, I think communities of people are sitting in pews or they're sitting online or they're sitting in a variety of different settings and they're asking a similar type of question. What is the sound of my own genuine? Like, what is my own unique gifting? What is my unique offering? What is my own contribution? And it's easy to not pay attention to that when, you know, you're on the hamster wheel of working just constantly in this type of repetitive cycle, just working, trying, you know, you got a mortgage, you got to get a roof over your head, you got to, you know, all these things that are quiet in terms of basic necessity. It's easy to lose touch with. Yeah, that's important, but you have something to offer. You have something to give. And that's why I think you have people who are 40, 50, 60 years old who are still like responsive to ideas like, so what is the sound of the gene within yourself? I mean, this is part of a self-awakening question. Like even asking that question, it's like, you know, when was the first time that you heard the rumbling of what was genuinely you? And your giftedness. When was the first time that you heard the sound of that or somebody heard that within you and named that for you? And I think whether you're a doctor, a lawyer, a nurse, plumber, or you're doing domestic work, whatever that might be, that question is still relevant for everyone. And so I think they haven't even realized that, you know, that they could ask that question or they assume that asking these type of self-awakening questions or vocational questions is that's kind of navel gaze. That's for people, for the privilege or whatever. No. There's this idea, at least within kind of an African worldview, that before a child is born, the community is anticipating that each person that comes here comes here with a gift. And so whether you're 35 or whether you're 45, 55 or 75, we can all cultivate the kinds of communities that help people to discover that and to live more fully into that. Hey, Stephen, you're reminding me of a conversation that Ben and I share, this colleague, Mackenzie. Mm. And we have this program we're developing at the Center for Congregations called Congregations with Community. And Mackenzie goes, no, 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 no. He goes, it should be Congregations as Community. Mm. And I'm just thinking that's what came to mind as I was hearing you talk. And I also was thinking congregations, you know, we have the best youth group in town, congregations, we just redid our sanctuary, it's beautiful, and all of those things may be true, but what if, you know, what if we're the center for congregations, what if we were like the center for congregational vocation, so that, like the things you said, the physician, the domestic worker, all of these different things, what if the community called church was actually your group as a moving tabernacle <laughs> into these churches? That's an interesting thought. What, what it makes me think about is the church does not have a great commission. Mm. That is, I mean, that is, as a personal color, that is so problematic when I think about kind of missionary type of language and that type of thing. And so when you look at that Matthew text, if anything, the church has a great vocation, but it's not, you know, a commission or that you had these missionary journeys in the sense that, you know, that the job is to come in somehow, you know, come into different places and try to make them more like into your own image. What it is to suggest is that if communities were such compelling places that people live these lives where folks were so compelled that I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that community because of the way that you live your life, the way that you carry out as a community and do the work, be the hands and feet 
of God within the broader society. That the way that you treat people, even though they may even, you feel like they deserve to be treated, but you all do something different. That if you live your life in such a way that people are compelled, because of the way in which your community lives out its vocation, what it's called to be, the ecclesia, the community, the church that is called out to call other peoples out, then I think you might be on the song. Because what does it mean to be a center for people who congregate mm. around this young adult, born of a teenage mother, of a lower social economic class, who's pneumatic, and who seem to always be at odds with the religious authority and the political authority at hand. What does it mean to congregate and be a follower of that way? And what does it then call of us and those who are going to be followers of that way to build community around that? That's a very different type of orientation. And so, you know, when you say that, that's what it made me think about. And it also reminds me of the church in Washington, D.C. I met the founder before he passed or whatever, but it was the Church of the Savior. And their whole thing is that they were committed to being small, no more than like 200 people. I was reading, I saw like how they got all these grant dollars and these other resources that folks had poured into. And they had like this $10 million budget and they're doing all this affordable housing. And, and their whole thing is like if the church, if the community grew too big, then it would splinter off and start a whole another type of enclave of communities or whatever. Now, that's just one expression. But the point that I'm trying to make here is that their whole idea was like, we're going to build community around helping others discern their call. And so some people are called to build like affordable housing. Then that community organizes and try to support folks who want to do that. And then to discern, you know, what another person's doing, try to support that. Whatever that was in mission with what that church is trying to do as a witness of this young adult founder who's the founder of our faith. And, you know, it's amazing what they did. And so, you know, when you think about a center for congregations that are following that way, that is exciting. That is imaginative. That is perhaps even faithful, at least to what the text says. I love that. I love that. And thank you for those reflections and the questions. They're very rich. And I think it, in some ways it's a great place to end, just inviting our audience to continue to reflect and think on some of those questions and the examples that you gave. But as we mentioned earlier, you have a lot of work you're doing. You have an organization you're leading. You have a book that's out. So if people want to follow you, Stephen, follow your work, stay in touch with what's going on, what are the best ways for them to do that? Uh, FTE Leaders. Dot org is our website. And then those are our social handles. And so that's probably the best place to kind of follow our work. And, you know, I am on social, but I don't do much on social. So most of it's through the organization's work. But yeah, that's where they can find me. Excellent. Thank you so much for making time to speak with Tim and I today. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure of being with you. And I wish you well and blessings on your work in ministry. Likewise, Stephen. Really enjoyed being with you. Thanks. So Tim, that was a really deep and meaningful conversation, at least as I experienced it. And I'm wondering, you know, what is lingering with you on the other side of that dialogue with Stephen? I agree. It was deep and I'd say it created an opportunity not only to listen to Stephen, but to think and discern along with him because I could hear, I can hear how carefully Stephen has in his own life as he's talking about discernment about other people and just about how he's between the lines and maybe more overt. He's telling us how he's used community, how community has helped shape who he is. Yeah, just really powerful, personal and professional at the same time. It was. And there were several lines he said that resonated with me and hit me deeply. I like this question about what is the next most faithful step. I think that's really important. And sometimes when we're overwhelmed with decisions, it's nice to just kind of focus in and zero in on that. I would call it the next right thing. He said the next most faithful step. I think it's similar ideas, but just to know, okay, what do I need to do next? And so I liked that. But the thing that stood out to me most 
was when he said, what is your medicine for the community? And I think I've heard of this described this way before, but what I appreciate about that phrasing and that way of asking what your talents are, what your gifts are, what impact do you want to have, is that when you frame it as medicine, you are implying a sense of mutuality that isn't always there otherwise, right? Medicine serves a purpose. Sometimes it's for yourself, sometimes it's for other people. So when I think of my talents and all I have to offer as medicine for community, then as I even start to frame and think about my answer, there's an element of mutuality and community built into it. And I really, really appreciated him doing that and offering that reframe. So that was the moment that was really charged and meaningful for me. Yeah, it was a it was a wonderful moment, wonderful way to talk about. And just love you bringing up the word medicine. So as soon as you said that, I listened, I listened. And then here's the image that came to my mind. When I go to my primary physician, just regular appointment, he asks questions, he figures out why I'm there. And then no matter why I'm there, he takes out his stethoscope and he touches my chest. And then he does around the back. And it's very safe touch. You know, he approaches, I could say no, but it's very safe touch. And what he's doing, I think, I figured this out after 30 years, what he's doing is he's demonstrating that the medicine isn't just what he prescribes. The relationship mm -hmm. between us is the medicine. And the way that's shown is through this stethoscope that's probably invented, what, X hundred years ago? I don't know. But mm -hmm. the medicine is what's going on in the space between people in this sense, in the primary physician, not just the prescription people themselves are medicine to one yeah. another. Yeah, and the stethoscope acts as the bridge uh, by which the medicine can travel and the connection can be made. And this is actually, I'm glad you said that story because it, it brings to mind something I was thinking during the interview. And I was wondering about how an organization can take that framework on for itself, right? So like, if we believe that there's medicine in our relationships, how does an organization take that principle and begin applying it so that culture shifts, so that you're thinking about how you're doing your programming or your mission or you know however you talk about it. And, and that question came up because I again, I'm used to hearing discernment talked about, you know, for people coming out of school, going into their profession. I'm used to hearing it in churches. I don't hear it nearly as often in organizations that aren't churches or maybe occasionally like educational institutions, but I think it's still really important. And so I was kind of just toying with this idea of, okay, what is discernment? What is the sound of the genuine? What does medicine look like if I take all these concepts and bring it into an organizational space? And so that's a question that, that bubbled up that your story reminded me of. It changes like the questions, right? And it changes who's in the room or evident who's not there. And then you can bring in who's not there. So the questions might move from what's our goal? How many do we want to achieve? To what percentage do we want to increase? You know, how are we going to do that? to questions like, what question do you bring with you into this room that uh, isn't necessarily about hitting 70% of something? Yeah. So in that spirit, before we transition into the other parts of this segment, what question do you feel you either brought into this interview or do you feel yourself holding in this room, this virtual room that we're in now, Tim? I'm holding the Thurman quote, the sound of the genuine, and not just hearing from Howard Thurman and not just the quote, but the way Stephen presented it, the way Stephen mm -hmm. shared it with us. So that I'm carrying away not only the words from Howard Thurman that are powerful, but I guess I'm carrying Stephen with me and the way he presented that. Yeah, I could, it's almost like felt level. Indeed, I think the question came from a feeling question. So mm -hmm. I'm not quite sure what to say mm -hmm. other than it made me feel whole, the quote and Stephen himself. Yeah, that is... Really rich. And I could tell it, it moved you because of how you responded. But Stephen was also very clearly moved as he was saying it. I imagine it's not the first time he said that. It sounds like it's something near and dear to his heart that he revisits regularly as if it's his own medicine. And it's always a gift when you get to kind of peek at what is medicine for someone else. Absolutely. One thing also I want to notice, you know, that in many ways, Howard Thurman is a live contemporary mystic. But on a timeline, we're looking back. Ben, I also really appreciated your question when you were asking, okay, what about the generation front? You know, what about those who've come ahead? What kind of theological or discernment conversations would happen there? And would there be different answers now from those folks? Different experiences, different approaches. So this conversation with Stephen, we were looking back. And then, example, your question helped us also turn our heads toward the future. 
Yeah. Thanks for naming that, Tim. I wonder sometimes if our older adults, even middle-aged adults, get lost when it comes to discernment. You know, a lot of folks go through midlife crises where they've lived a certain type of way, and then some of those narratives they've held begin to fall apart due to deaths or other life experiences, and then they've got to reevaluate, right? And they're thrust into a, what I would call discernment. They might have other language, but I think it's a process of discernment. But the communal supports, the societal support, the narratives aren't there to undergird them in the same ways that they are for young adults. You're, yeah, when you're in your early 20s and teens, we're expecting you to go through processes of discernment. You get to listen to all these speeches, read all these books. You know, there's places to guide you. And I think that might decrease over time. And yet, I don't think we ever stop needing discernment. You know, as life shifts and moves and change and we shift and move and change, we have to keep revisiting the question, okay, what does my genuine sound like? It might sound different than it did 10 years ago, but it's still there and I've got to be familiar with it so that others might be familiar with it. And I just don't know that we're offering enough guidance to older folks to kind of revisit the sound of their genuine. Ben, I'd love to continue that part of the conversation because it's real rich because I need to be doing that. And I'm also thinking mm -hmm. that when that doesn't happen, I'm drawing from another field around trauma and the way human beings experience trauma. So I'm kind of going now into a whole different life arena, but the classic book on that's called The Body Keeps the Score. And so yeah. if this journey of discernment stops somewhere, sometimes the body tells you, not your soul, yeah, but sometimes your body catches up and says, hmm, keeping score here, what should you really be praying and thinking about? Yeah. And that, that's usually a last ditch effort. Like when your body has to get involved and intervene, it, it usually means there's been some other signs that have been missed, you know, so you better pay attention when that happens. <laughs> yeah. What, <laughs> I got it. Yep. Got it. <laughs> right. So I think, you know, before we transition to resources, I would just encourage our audience to hold some of those questions. You know, maybe you're in a period where you could use some discernment. I just want to remind you that's okay. I think we all need that. And there are different ways you can seek that out. Discernment might look like meeting regularly with a therapist or counselor. It might look like reconnecting with a mentor you had at one point in your life and just sitting down for coffee and seeing if they'll listen and be a sounding board. It might mean finding a book from your favorite author on the topic. It might mean going on a retreat. It might mean getting back into meditation. Discernment can look a lot of different ways for a lot of different people. And many of us need multiple modes of discerning because it's ultimately about creating space within and without. So I just encourage you to reflect on where you might have a need for discernment in your life and then to see what that next most faithful step is or your next right thing is to meet that need that you have for discernment. Because when we're all doing that, when we're all finding our own medicine and the sound of our own genuine we can create healthier communities. And when we're not, our communities can start to get sick. And we all know what happens when sickness runs rampant. Thank you for that, Ben. Thanks for that summary. Of, it's a beautiful invitation you have to our listeners to step back and do that discernment themselves. And you also gave a couple options, several options there of what that might look like and what kind of space that might be. In congregational life, really do want to send you to Stephen Lewis's book. He has two co-authors, Another Way, Living and Leading Change on Purpose. Some of the Howard Thurman quote is moved throughout that book, but he uses the acronym CARE. You might have caught that in some of the conversation or if you're familiar with the book. Create hospitable space, ask self-awakening questions, reflect theologically together, and then do something. E, enact the most faithful steps. So that book itself would be a good book for congregants to read together or Vocationally, what if you were in a workspace where you maybe took that book with you and said, someone says, hey, what's that book? And you describe the book and then they want to read it and now you have a conversation, living your vocation outside of congregational space. Hey, Ben, there's a documentary about Howard Thurman. It's uh, produced by Journey Films. I think you can get it straight out of Amazon. It's not that expensive. It was shown on PBS. I don't know what kind of access mm -hmm. you have there, but I highly recommend this documentary about Howard Thurman. It situates him in the context in which he existed. And he was inviting people to not just think about church differently, but think about life of faith differently. He also is a pastor of this incredible church in San Francisco. I liked hearing Stephen talk about Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C. You can learn a lot about congregational life by reading about Howard Thurman's congregation that he started in San Francisco. And correct me if I'm wrong, Tim, but I think that documentary is called Backs Against the Wall, the Howard Thurman story. Does that sound right? Yeah, that's exactly it, Ben. You got it. Okay. 
Great documentary. A couple of resources I wanted to bring that I think fit with our overall theme of discernment are two podcasts. And these podcasts have been mentioned before. I think we mentioned them, Abby, another colleague of mine. We mentioned these in a bonus episode, I think in season three. But the podcasts are called The Next Right Thing. And this is a podcast by Emily P. Freeman. She's also got a book with the same title. And the podcast, it's a weekly episode, short, usually 15 to 20 minutes, designed to help you figure out what your next right thing is. And so it's all about discernment, whether you're discerning how to change your daily routine, discerning a career change, a relationship change. She offers really practical, helpful, and spiritually grounded tips on how to engage with the process of discernment. So check out the Next Right Thing podcast and book by Emily P. Freeman. And there's also one called We Can Do Hard Things. And this is a podcast by Glennon Doyle and her wife, Abby, and her sister as well. She wrote Untamed, I think. She did. She wrote Untamed. Yeah, she's written a few books. That's the most recent. And Untamed is also a great book. So We Can Do Hard Things, is it's pretty self-explanatory. The three of them get together, they engage with a topic, and the whole point is, okay, how do we engage with this topic while reminding ourselves that though it is difficult, we can do hard things. And so one week they might talk about divorce, one week they might talk about eating disorders, they might talk about church hurt, they might talk about patriarchy and sexism, racism. I mean, they cover the gambit and their topics, the conversation's usually raw and it's real and again, also spiritually grounded. And so if you're looking for a podcast that will nourish your spirit as well as your mind, I would recommend starting with those two. We Can Do Hard Things by Glennon Doyle and The Next Right Thing by Emily P. Freeman. I think those are great additions to your discernment process. I'm really interested in the resources you just shared and they're great invitations for our congregation leaders or all of the audience of this podcast to be able to take this conversation further to the next step and see how their lives unfold in beautiful ways. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, I've benefited from them for sure. And as we wrap up today, we want to remind you all that you can follow the Center for Congregations on Facebook and Instagram. We're at the Center for Congregations. You can look up resources on our congregational resource guide at thecrg.org. And we also want to continuously thank both the expertise of our audio engineer, Jaden Lee, who makes us sound great, and the generosity of the Lilly Endowment, because it's their support that makes all of the work that we do possible here at the Center for Congregations. And finally, two more things for y'all. One, you know the drill by now. Leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, not just to stroke our ego, though I'll always enjoy my ego being stroked. But practically because if you think this content is meaningful, it's the fastest way for new listeners to find it. And so leave us that five-star rating. Other listeners can find it and listen to interviews like this with Stephen Lewis. And we want to give a shout out to our listeners in Dallas, Texas. Thank you for your support. Thank you for listening to us. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at podcast at centerforcongregations.org. We would love to hear from you. Anything you want to add before we sign off, Tim? Ben, just want to second everything you said. The listeners with this podcast are picking up. The community is growing in terms of who's logging in and listening. And so as representing the Center for Congregations, I just I give five stars to the podcast. And I'm really excited about the way in which it's reaching more and more people about something really important, congregational lives. Absolutely. You heard it here first, folks. Our president gives us five stars, so you should too. So go give us five stars. But thank you all for listening. We appreciate you so much. Until next time, I'm Ben Tapper. Tim Shapiro, happy to be with you all. Take care.